You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then Jerubabal, that is, Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Morah, in the valley. Yahweh said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then twenty-two thousand of the people returned, and ten thousand remained. And Yahweh said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And Yahweh said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And Yahweh said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night Yahweh said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it, so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for Yahweh has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies, and put trumpets into the hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me, and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and shout, For Yahweh and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. 
Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, Yahweh set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshita, toward Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah, by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, and from Asher, and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and capture the waters against them, as far as beth and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as beth and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 704 of this podcast. Today is Monday, September 4th, 2023, and that means that it is Labor Day today. That was a reading of Judges chapter 7, and Gideon here is told you have too many men. You have too many men, and if you go into battle like this, you're going to to be tempted to take the credit for the victory. And I don't want that, if I can paraphrase. God basically wants to thin the ranks for Gideon so that it is indisputable that God gave the Midianites into Gideon's hand and delivered the people of Israel. What's at risk, if it looks like Gideon actually is the one who delivered Israel, is that a kind of worship is given to or thought appropriate for Gideon. Or, on the other hand, if the people of Israel say, we delivered ourselves by our own right hand, by our own mighty right hand, then they will become puffed up. They will become arrogant, and they'll go right back to doing the wicked things, which precipitated God giving them into the hand of their enemy. And why this is important in part, I think, is because one of the things that unfortunately has become a mainstay of much preaching, teaching, ministry, prescription, the way that much of the American evangelical world does church and tries to grow the church, what has come to mark our expression of Christian faith in this country is a profound lack of humility on the one hand and a false humility on the other hand. And what I mean by that is we have the shiniest, tallest, darkest, most handsome ministers and thought leaders and commentators, and we put them to the fore, and we have them do the preaching and the teaching and the speaking and the writing and the music and If it goes very, very well and a large, large crowd is drawn and the church that they are associated with 
becomes very large and very prosperous, and they have a big, beautiful building, and they have lots of ministries, so-called, lots of things that they're doing that are making a big impact on the community. And if they're receiving quite a lot of praise, the person at the very top tends to develop something of a cult-like following around them. And it doesn't look exactly like it would in the business world, but it's similar. And it doesn't look exactly like it would in the secular celebrity scene, but it's pretty close. If there is a humility attached to it, very often it's a false humility. Unfortunately, I mark it as a false humility. And part of the test of whether it's a false humility is what comes out when you proceed to disagree with some aspect of how the message is being delivered or how the church is operating. If you object, if you express some kind of concern or dissent, that's when you find out whether the humility is genuine or not. For that matter, if the work is perhaps genuine, but you want to take it a little bit further, you say, oh, there's a little bit more that needs to be added to this actually because you're leaving some things out. And that's maybe because you were afraid of scaring people off If you included those things, you wanted a certain demographic, you kind of know who your target audience is with this church or this sermon series or this ministry or this outreach or this music or this type of book. If you say, as a follow-on to something that you have heard, watched, listened to, read, hey, I think what needs to be included is this, and I don't think that's been factored in, and Therefore, this is a half-truth, perhaps. Very often, what you get is not a thank you. Very often, what you get is a fiery response of, how dare you? That's very disrespectful. People get very defensive, particularly if they like that particular preacher or that particular author or that particular professor or theologian or commentator or musician or movie maker. People get very defensive and they don't want that, right? They don't want to feel defensive, particularly once they start trying to reach for arguments and they don't have any, right? They go reaching into the bag of tricks and there's nothing in there. They just have a strong emotion. And what we have to get better at, I think, is appreciating that sometimes good stewardship means you tackle the mission that God has given you without having everything that a man could ask for apart from God. Because what God wants to reveal is that he is the one giving the victory. Now, you can go too far with that as well. Don't get me wrong. Just like there can be a false humility when actually it's a lot of wealth that's driving a certain program, or it's some very high-powered people, very well-connected, with a lot of charisma, who are telling half the truth because the other half would scare off the target audience. Just like there can be a false humility there, there can also be a false humility in saying, oh, I don't, right? I don't need any of that. I don't want to reach for any of that. All of that's just a crutch, and I'm going to go in half-cocked and prepare not at all. And look at me. There can be a false humility to that as well, where you say, well, wait a second. You also have a half-truth, perhaps. And... Here's the other half of what you're saying that maybe you're not saying because your target audience and your intention, your goal that you have in mind isn't really to persuade. It's not really 
to reconcile. It's not really to build up. It's not to edify anybody else. It's to promote yourself. And part of the test for when that's actually what's driving somebody saying that they're swearing off, they're foregoing all material benefits, or you might argue good stewardship principles, all wise counsel, what the test might be is when you say, well, wait a second, it's also written that we should do this or we should remember that. If the response of the person being spoken to or perhaps advised or perhaps corrected is, again, to be defensive and to bristle and to reach into a bag of tricks and find nothing and then just emote at you with angry emotions, with anxious emotions, with fearful emotions, with running away from you. Well, there too, perhaps just maybe we're missing the point. Maybe on both ends of the spectrum here, we're missing the point. If we're thinking either A, I need to forego all material that might be used, or on the other hand, I need to do this excellently. And by excellently, I mean it needs to be perfect and impressive in a material sense. Sometimes the good Lord does work in providing material blessings. And sometimes the good Lord says, you have too many men. The ones I say you should send home, send home. And here in Judges chapter seven, we see it's quite a lot. It was 22,000 of the people returned. God sent 22,000 home till only 10,000 remained. And you think, wow, that's two thirds, over two thirds having been sent home. But then God's not finished yet. And he says, I want them, all the men who are left, all the men who remain to lap water, perhaps. Go down to the water and have everyone drink. And the ones who lap the water like a dog, set them off to the side. And the ones who lap by putting their hands to their mouths, those should be in a separate group. The ones who put the water to their mouths and they're upright and they're keeping a watch, you might say, and they're maintaining a certain level of dignity and composure. There's a wariness and not an overconfidence. Those 300 I will use along with you and I will give the Midianites into your hand. Everybody else send home. So now we're talking about an original force of 32,000. Rough math, I'm sure it wasn't exactly 32,000, but that's close enough. 32,000 have now been distilled down to the 300 men God said he would use. And if not for God saying, this is the plan, this is what I'm going to do, nobody in their right mind would say, 32,000? Nah, that's too many men to win a battle with. You want every man you can get as long as they're you know decent quality men, but then that's something God knows, arguably far better. I shouldn't even say arguably. Of course, of course he knows far better than Gideon ever would, which men are the quality men. And you might think it's arbitrary. Well, what's the difference between lapping the water like a dog getting down on all fours and on the other hand, kneeling down, grabbing a cup of it in your hand and drinking it while you stay upright. What's the difference? And this is conjecture. This is speculation. Here I'm not going based on what is in the text. And so take it with a grain of salt. 
But if I'm honest, as I'm just thinking through this, I think it's because the 300 men who cup the water and they bring it to their mouth and they stay upright, I think it's because the moral character and the general carefulness of these 300 men is of the kind that is more likely to be sober-minded on the other end of this battle. They're not just 300 random men taken out of the 10,000 who remain. There are 300 men who, by drinking the water in this way, show that they have a certain personality, they have a certain mindset, they have certain habits. And maybe those habits are more likely to be associated with the kind of man who is going to handle well this having been a victory. And what I mean by that is, on the other end of this battle, when God gives Midian into the hands of Gideon and these men, there's going to be a great temptation for when they go home, these 300 men to be hailed as the heroes, for them to get put on a pedestal and to be given all the credit, for them to be received with something like a worshipful reverence. Wow, you are the 300 men. You're the ones who delivered Israel. But if these are the kinds of men who even just when it's a human enemy, another man of Midian, they're careful, they keep eyes out for somebody trying to sneak up on them or attack, then how much more so are they likely to be vigilant and watchful if temptation comes their way, a temptation perhaps to take the credit that rightly belongs to God, that God wants to get. Now he's on the one hand giving the enemy into the hands of Gideon. He's giving Midian into the hands of Gideon. It's funny how that rhymes. Yes, so Gideon gets some credit, sure. And these 300 men will get some credit, sure. But all of that has to be kept in check. Otherwise, bad things happen. Bad things spiritually, mentally, emotionally, a disordering of our affections, which can tear a people, it can tear a generation apart. And again, I say that in the US, I have observed far too often, we are not careful enough about this. And so we have celebrity preachers. And I want to give full credit to Carl Truman, author of Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and Strange New Worlds, as well as The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, for going to a Together for the Gospel, I believe it was, conference years ago, where he was asked to sit on a panel discussion discussing celebrity pastors. Here is this conference for pastors, where everyone is congratulating everyone else, patting each other on the back, saying, go team, go. And by go team, go, they mean in that context, our fellow pastors, our fellow preachers. And here we're going to hear from the successful ones. And how do we measure whether they're successful? By how many people attend their church. And Carl Truman had said things, written things to that point, critical of this trend towards celebrity pastors. We want a celebrity pastor, almost like an expert. We know that they're an expert. What are they an expert in? Well, they're an expert in drawing a large audience. So what do we value? What do we prioritize when we look to those guys show us how it's done, to tell us how it's done, to model it for us. Well, what we prioritize highly is drawing large crowds. That's what we want. If we had a chance to have somebody at the fore like those guys, 
in our local church, in our local community, we would absolutely do it because what do we want? We want a large crowd. We measure our success in numbers. And again, there's nothing wrong with having numbers. But Carl Truman's question was, isn't this perhaps unhealthy? Isn't this perhaps dangerous spiritually that we would put these men who are so expert, who are so polished or so appealing, so charismatic on such a pedestal, isn't that dangerous? And oh, by the way, are we perhaps getting away from something that is very present all throughout the biblical text, which is God calling ordinary men to serve him so that it's obvious that it wasn't that they were extraordinary in and of themselves. It's that God is extraordinary. Wouldn't it be better if we had more preachers from churches where they have 100 people on a Sunday? Shouldn't we have more pastors from churches like those getting up and speaking at our preaching conferences? We don't have any time slots for those guys? Giving them practice? They can preach a fine sermon. In fact, there's probably plenty of men who have not gone to seminary, but they've read their Bibles, who could preach a fine sermon, and we don't hear from them. Why? Because all of our time is absorbed in listening to the men who draw crowds of thousands in person, and they draw crowds of perhaps even tens and hundreds of thousands when they say something that gets posted online. I think Carl Truman was quite correct there. And of course, he wasn't completely opposed to getting up and addressing a large group of pastors because he was there, you know? But all the same, we shouldn't miss that God takes a army of 32,000 and trims it down to 300 and then delivers Midian into the hands of Gideon and these 300 in a very unusual way. Not following some formula, not hey, here's 10 easy steps to make sure that your battle against God's enemies is going to succeed, is going to win, and then you get credit for following that formula better than anybody else. No, no. Hey, you guys are going to have <laughs> torches and trumpets. And you're going to have jars of clay. You're going to put the torches inside the jars and we're going to break up into three groups, three companies, 100 men each. So we're dividing still into smaller groups. We went from 32,000 down to 300. That is to say, slightly less than 1% of the original force is now being employed. But then we're going to divide into three groups. Why does this work? Why is this successful? Why didn't this result in some member of the enemy army, some watchman raising the alarm and all 300 plus Gideon being cut down in short order. Why? Why was this successful? Was it successful because Gideon went to the right school, he went to the right seminary, or he taught at the right seminary? Was this successful because a coalition was able to be formed very carefully, very strategically, very cleverly over the course of years and decades of faithful ministry, answering the highest calling. Well, there's no indication of any of that being why this, why this was successful. There's nothing about that, right? There's nothing, none of the typical kinds of phrases that you hear regarding 
the celebrity pastors and the thought leaders in the church today, none of those kinds of phrases are bandied about with regards to Gideon here or these 300 men. None. None at all. And I think that's telling. I think that that is significant. And we should put more attention into what we don't find in this passage. I think there's oftentimes a mistaken assumption that when we come to the biblical text and we see a character like Gideon and God calling to Gideon in the wine press as he's trying to get the grain ready to hide it from the Midianites, when he says, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor, we think, wow, I want to be like Gideon, who was a mighty man of valor. But we never, ever think, I want to be like Gideon, hiding grain from our enemies. Man, that was so great. (laughs) I want to be like Gideon, and I want to say the cynical thing in response to the angel of Yahweh himself telling me to go out against the Midianites because Midian is going to be delivered into his hand. Yeah, I want to be I want to be like Gideon who doesn't even know who he's talking to and replies very cynically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be like Gideon who takes a force of 32,000 and trims it down to 300 and does exactly what they're told. When we find that there were real people, flesh and blood people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as Christians, and we find that maybe not everything they did was so great, what's the tendency there? The tendency is to say, ah, I was putting them up on a pedestal, but now that I realize that they had these flaws, these vices, these weaknesses, these vulnerabilities, these little follies, these little sins here and there, sometimes big sins, sometimes what seemed like very little sins, very small sins, but the consequences were very big in a negative way, what do we do then? We say, ah, they were on this pedestal, but now we're going to just run their names through the mud. I don't think that's right either. I don't think that's respectful. and I don't think that's why God tells us about their flaws. I think we're supposed to learn about God in the way he is relating to them. And we should be focusing on how God is good God is wise, God is faithful, and yes, key in on the kinds of people God is willing to, happy to, pleased to even, call to serve him and to accomplish his purposes. Do pay attention to that, but that's the sideshow. That's not the main attraction. The main attraction here is what God is doing, and that is the point of Judges chapter 7. If the main point is not what is God doing, Or if we just automatically assume when it looks like a ministry or a movement is successful, and be careful how you define what is successful, we make that the main attraction. Well, then what should we expect? We should expect that we're going to be given into the hands of our own, very own oppressors. We should expect that we're going to have to cry out here at a certain point, but it's going to take probably things getting bad enough to get through to us if we're being stiff-necked, if we're being stubborn. It's going to take things getting bad enough, but then what we could do is we could say, hey, you know, if it looks like things are kind of getting bad, maybe let's retrace our steps and let's look back on, did we miss something? Did, did we miss something in Judges 7 or many, many other passages? Maybe did we miss the big idea, the main idea? Something 
to consider. And I think it's something we should consider. I think it's something we would be very benefited to meditate on. In other news, though, speaking of looking at the past and finding flawed people and hopefully seeing where God's hand was at work and in what context, I had the genuine privilege and pleasure of going to Lincoln Park Emporium here in the Greeley area. I think it's Greeley, but maybe it's Evans, technically. I'm not sure, honestly. I think it's Greeley. But Lincoln Park Emporium is something like a thrift store, something like an antique store, sometimes, depending on where you're at, here in Greeley, where you can find all manner of interesting things that apparently have been collected by the proprietor over the years, 15 years, I talked with him as I was checking out maybe 10 books or so that I bought. Used books, because they have a ton, which is great. I love used books. But they have furniture, interesting pieces. They have various decorative items. They have odd trinkets from recent decades. And they have books. And I went with my wife, Lauren, because we heard that they are planning to close the proprietor and his wife are getting advanced in years. They're getting older and they are not planning on keeping at it much longer. So maybe by the end of the year, they'll have closed the storefront and they'll be trying to catalog and auction off everything that they have. I was told by the owner, they have about a million dollars worth of merchandise in the building. And so they'll be trying to sell that over the course of of the next year, online, maybe in person as well. But we went and we were accompanied by Travis and Laura Polk, which was very fun. We've never done anything like that with the Polks. In fact, with anybody, we should do that kind of thing more often. Reach out to couples that we know and just say, hey, do you want to go hit up this store and see what they have and just kind of mill about and make conversation here and there but just see what it is, spend time together, get to know each other just a little bit more, and also perhaps find some cool books in the process. Well, I found some books that I had been wanting to get physical copies of, but because I don't have all the money in the world, I wasn't going to buy them full-priced new. And also, too, I didn't want to buy them from thrift books necessarily because even though they're cheaper than brand new, there is a markup unused books that you get from thrift books. If you can find them on the shelf in some thrift store, on the other hand, you might be paying $3 or $5 for what thrift books would sell you for 15. And if you're wanting to buy 10 books, well, that adds up pretty quickly to, on the one hand, (laughs) 20 bucks worth of books, 30 bucks worth of books, or $100 more than that. So one of the books I picked up was Dominion by Tom Holland. I'm very glad to have a physical copy. I listened to it on audiobook, was very, very pleased to. But now I have a physical copy on my shelf, which I paid all of $5 for, which is great. I also found the first three novels of James Clavell's The Asian Saga, Shogun, Taipan, Gaijin. And now we have copies of those, which is great. I also found a couple of little quirky books that were like, oh, that looks like it could be fun to have as a reference, something to pull off the shelf and just read for fun or for the kids to read for fun. 
one on the history of words, where certain words come from. It's kind of like a dictionary, but you flip through and it's just these little etymological entries for each word. Where does this word come from? Why do we use that word for this thing? So that's fun. But also, one of the books I picked up caught my eye, in part because I recently read Nancy R. Piercy's The Toxic War on Masculinity. And what I found most useful, and I would say it's worth reading the book, if only for this, even though there's a lot else in the way of conclusions I did not like and I do not agree with, what was very helpful was her telling of the history of how the family unit changed due to the Industrial Revolution. And that got me thinking, man, I want to read more books about how the family unit changed due to the Industrial Revolution, where Nancy R. Piercy points out that the husband and the father was taken out of the home and off of the farm to go and make higher wages in the factories, which typically meant the families moving to the cities where you could live in a high density, relatively proximity to other people. What you had was the men typically working alongside each other in these factories all day for long hours and the women, their wives, their mothers, being home alone to tend to the children, to keep the home running, to keep the farm going, to teach the children. This very much affected how children were raised. This very much affected the relationship between husbands and wives. It affected the psychology of men, which makes a lot of sense. I've worked in a factory in my time, and now it's not just the men who work in the factories, it's men and women, and that gets to be interesting, especially if some of the women are feminist and feel a certain hostility towards a younger man being confident and looking like he's going to go places and he starts asking questions and picking things up quickly. And so now it works a little bit different because lo and behold, the way that the industrial revolution affected men initially, the male psychology initially gave way, you might say in World War I and World War II as the men, so many men were going off to war and women were coming in to take the factory jobs so they could produce the materials that needed to be employed in the war efforts. When the men came back home, you had a continuation of the effects of men and their wives being alienated from one another and all of that being exacerbated by the women now saying, we want to keep our factory jobs. We want to stay in the workforce. And then along comes women's suffrage. And interestingly, as Nancy R. Piercy points out, women's suffrage started out not really as so much emphasizing that women should get the right to vote as that every individual should get the right to vote. And that was distinct from heads of households representing their whole household. But you have to have a household in order to have heads of household mean something. And for the head of a household to be actually representative of his family, he has to actually be there managing affairs, speaking from experience Hey, I just came from my home and this is something that we're dealing with or this is something my wife just told me. If they work different shifts so that one of them can be home to watch young children, 
or at least be present in case something is needed, no longer do you have that. Or if they both work during the day and their children go off to a public school, no longer do you have that close familiarity. You have maybe a few hours at the end of the day, maybe measuring in minutes at the front end of the day, the beginning of the day, as everybody's getting ready to go to work or to school. You have a very different atmosphere, a very different home economy, if you can even call it a home economy. But actually, more nearly what we could describe the home and the family unit as is a bunch of people who are related to one another biologically, and they have a formal status, right? A legal status, but functionally, practically, they are atomized. Instead of being parts of a whole, they're first and foremost individuals. And as women in this mindset for generations, and men in this mindset for generations, and children growing up in these kinds of homes, in these kinds of families for generations, come forward to the present. Now, Nancy R. Piercy would say, you do have toxic masculinity. And I think she is rather partial towards women and against the men in her assessment. I don't think she gives near enough attention to how this has negatively affected the psychology of women. But nevertheless, where she might be mistaken on some of these things, there's only really one way to find out, and that's by rolling up my sleeves and seeing what more there is to the history. Can I get a more balanced history that is not so focused on what's the problem with men? The men are not doing okay, but the women are also not doing okay, and it looks different right now. After decades of men being pilloried in sitcoms and in movies and in print and in academia and by politicians, men being preached against disproportionately in a lot of the pulpits. Men are called to repent, but also men are disproportionately the ones being served divorce papers instead of filing for divorce themselves. It's something like a ratio of four to one or nine to one, depending on whether the wife is college educated. The only way for me to really sort through what is actually a more balanced view of this, perhaps to be able to do something about it, to not just analyze and not just think in an abstract way, but in order to do something in the way of giving a prescription that would help, I picked up Lawrence Stone's The Family, Sex, and Marriage in England, 1500 to 1800. This book, first published January 2nd, 1979, is between 400 and 500 pages long. I haven't started to read it yet. I just opened to a few random pages and I saw the title and I thought, that is a premise that might just fit the bill or it might just go a long ways to giving me the next book I should read or the next resource I should seek out. Maybe there will be some references in here. Surely there will be some references in here to other materials that Lawrence Stone was referring to where I can find out more, even if this book doesn't prove to be sufficient for me to get a good grasp of this. I want to know more because I want to understand. I know how I feel about it. I know that I am not getting the whole story, but I want to know that I know and not just know how I feel. So checking out 
online what it is that I actually picked up. Here, I'm not doing a book review, but I'm doing something of a book preview because I haven't read it yet, but I brought it home because it was a great deal. $5 seems like not much to pay for a book on this subject when I was just asking my friend Aaron Didlake, who has two degrees in history, I was just asking him, this might just be the book I need. So here's what goodreads.com has to say about this work. Studies, the evolution of English attitudes regarding marriage and sexuality in relation to the accompanying social, political, religious, and economic trends. That's it. That's it. That's not much to go on. It's got 199 ratings, 22 reviews, 3.7 out of 5 stars on average. That's not a lot to go on. And that's not exactly a ringing endorsement that there's so little said. But if I skip on down to the reviews, what I find is a certain Johan is not impressed. He gave it two out of five stars back in 2015. He thinks the issue with Stone is he's been somewhat left behind as his pet theories have been reviewed and largely discarded. So it is with this book. There is good, interesting information in here, but you have to pick through the 1970s theories. And I say, if there's good information here, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for material that is contemporary with when this was all happening in England, because the Industrial Revolution in England is a lot of what drove the Industrial Revolution in other places in the West. And that includes here in the US. Also interesting here is you think 1500. That's just after Christopher Columbus and his discovery of the new world for Spain. Not that nobody had discovered it before that, but for Western European purposes, as far as it being known that this was a place maybe we should explore, check out, colonize, 1500 is just perfect to start seeing changes in the way that we think about the world and the West, because I'm a product of Western civilization. You probably are too. It's good for us to know. Starting at this pivotal juncture, oh, also, by the way, pivotal because of the Protestant Reformation, and if we carry it forward to 1800, we basically have the time period I'm looking for. We basically have the effects of the discovery of the new world, colonizing this new world, which should give me an insight into some of the reason people were going to the new world, perhaps to get away from some of these trends, some of these attitudes, or perhaps to go and live them out more fully in a purer way with a purer expression. Perhaps that's what I'll find in this book. Michelle Llewellyn, October 2nd, 2013, says, I'm giving this two stars because I didn't care for the anti-family, anti-marriage tone. The author paints a dismal picture of family life in Elizabethan England, making it seem very much like today, except getting married before having kids was still the majority in every socioeconomic bracket. Even if parents didn't want the kids, not wanting to get too close in case of death, most parents still did their duty in making sure the child was educated, indoctrinated with religion, and if they lived past adolescence, got married. A single woman who lived to adulthood without opportunity for marriage still depended on her parents' charity or became a governess. Back then, it was the community who made sure the father paid some form of child support to the mother, 
of the bastard child. How interesting that death, not divorce, was the main purpose of getting remarried back in those days. I couldn't help but compare all of these facts to today's 21st century lifestyle, a completely different life script. This title was recommended in a university textbook, Beginning Theory, an Introduction to Literary and Cultural Theory by Peter Berry. So that's how I was led to find this at the library. It's an interesting read, but with all the child abuse and neglect, promiscuousness, sex trafficking, slavery, and wife beating we hear about today, I sure hope it wasn't as common 500 years ago as this author kept making it out to be. So you have one person giving this two stars, Johan, because he does not care for the 1970s theories. You have another giving this two stars because she sees this as being agenda-driven to beat up on traditional values, to beat up on families, really, to break the spell, so to speak, which some people might be under, that they would romanticize how the family was prior to the Industrial Revolution. This book was written, it seems, Michelle Llewellyn suspects, and she didn't like that. Meanwhile, I'm coming at this thinking, I want our families to be in better shape. I want us to be more intentional, more aware of what has affected our attitude towards the family in recent centuries. And how is it that we came to see so much of what we find in the Bible as foreign? When the Bible talks about certain family arrangements, say between a husband and his wife or between parents and their children, how is it that we came to find those so foreign, so difficult to understand or difficult to accept. That's what I want to know, even if the author has some conclusions that I can't agree with, because that's basically what I'm coming off of with The Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy R. Piercy. Tom Schultz wrote a review a bit more recently, December 26th, 2020, so the day after Christmas. This is what he wanted to write about. Maybe he got this book for Christmas and he read it in a day. Probably not. This is the history of, and he quotes, the rise in the West of the individualistic, nuclear, child-oriented family, which is the sole outlet of both sexual and effective bonding, end quote. At a high level, the three centuries cover three acts. One, formal and legal religious oversight of home life, including the invasive control of interregnum, Puritan authoritarianism, during which there occurred near dehumanization of women, complex marriage laws, and unattended swaddled children. Two, a world turned upside down and a harsh Hobbesian reality of each out for themselves and looking to get over the other. Three, the rise in the 17th century of an effective individualism, recognizable as modern, with, quote, the rising demand for autonomy, which found practical expression in growing resistance to attempts to put extreme pressure on the individual's body and soul, end quote. The story is told from many primary sources, novels, stage plays, memoirs, vital statistics, graveyard inscriptions, and more. And that is helpful, right? That's helpful information. He gave it four out of five stars, which that's about what I typically give to books that I find much more helpful than not. If they're not perfect, or if I can think of a lot of things I would change, or I would have subtracted, or I would have added, perhaps. I'm not going to give a book five stars, but I'll give it four if it was quite good with some qualifiers. That's what he gave it. 
Catherine Thompson has a review from 2020, January 18th. I'm glad I read this one as it's a classic in the field and provides a nice foundation for thinking further about different aspects. However, its scope is huge and as such, it has to rely on a lot of generalizations, which to be fair, Stone does acknowledge. More importantly, it is now noticeably outdated. There were several comments, especially to psychology, which genuinely made me cringe. So three stars it is. (laughs) The most recent review here is from Hussein Karamelikli. He gave it five stars on March 6th of this year. He writes, this book has a very comprehensive and explanatory content. It is very difficult to take notes from this book because every paragraph has content that needs to be noted. I note, by the way, that this gentleman is from Turkey and he is an associate professor in the Karabuk University Department of Economics with focuses on international economics, asymmetric ARDL model, and Middle East economic studies just so you know, fun fact there. But he liked this book. He very much liked it. And maybe for similar reasons that I picked it up and I'm interested in checking it out. Skipping on over to Google Books, which I don't usually do. Usually Goodreads gives me a pretty good summary of books I find on there. In this case, they didn't, except that they have a lot of reviews of books from people all over the world, as I just shared with you. Google Books gives more information, and I quote from the publisher, Penguin, During the period 1500 to 1800, there were massive changes in world social and cultural systems, and the family unit as we recognize it today came into being. The emphasis on the individual, the right to personal freedoms, and the desire for privacy developed during this period and were symptomatic of worldwide shifts in attitude that also affected religion and politics. This is a study of the evolution of the family from the, to us, impersonal, economically bonded, and precarious extended family group of the 16th century to the smaller, effectively bonded, nuclear unit that had appeared by the end of the 18th century and shows how this process radically influenced child-rearing, education, contraception, sexual behavior, and marriage. This work challenges many of the conventional views hitherto held about English society at that period. Now, if it challenges and there's more to the story, that's fine. I go into it expecting that there's going to be more to the story. But if there are firsthand materials and resources, say journal entries, plays, statistics, even just inscriptions from gravestones, if there are some helpful things to draw out of this in figuring out how we got to now with the attitudes toward family that we now see as common and typical, that is what I'm looking for anyways. So that's just as well. But I note here with the Google Books summary, this phrase, the family unit as we recognize it today, came into being during this period, 1500 to 1800. The family unit as we recognize it today. And what's being said here, even just in the brief synopsis from the publisher, there was a shift from the 16th to the 19th century. There was a shift away from seeing yourself as part of a broader extended family to the nuclear family. 
there is a shift away from saying, I have uncles and aunts and grandparents and cousins, and that is my family. That's what I mean by my family. There was a shift away from that, at least in England. That's the claim. And here in the United States, we're still part of the English-speaking world. So also, as men and women were traveling back and forth and even just getting messages and letters and news back and forth to the new world, I should expect that the shift was happening at least along somewhat similar lines here in North America that was happening in England, especially as people were continuing to travel back and forth, back and forth, and news and information was traveling back and forth. I should expect to find that there will be distinctions, but there will be also quite a lot that is familiar. I note also this time period, the 16th to the 19th century is when you have a lot of the Highland clearances type reforms being attempted in the United Kingdom. And that's been my interest when I try to do family history on my mother's mother's side or my wife's father's father's side, these Scottish families that came to the United States in that time period were being pushed by major reforms, social reforms, a lot of social engineering, re-engineering of society in Scotland, for instance, that's my interest, that basically said to clan chiefs in the Highlands, for instance, don't think of yourself anymore as a patriarch over a people. You're not the father of your people. You're not the head of your clan. You're a landlord. This is an economic arrangement. They work the land. They do what you tell them to do. They pay the rents or they get off the land. And if they won't get off the land, because that's not how we've been doing things. And if you won't extract those rents from them like a landlord first and put away all this thinking of yourself as a patriarch, if you don't, well, then we'll push you out too. And that was the dark side of the King James whose name is on our KGV English Bibles. That was a major work of his, not just to go after men and women who were supposedly dabbling in witchcraft, but to overhaul Scottish society, to bring Scotland to heel for this new social imaginary. The social imaginary being that we're no longer going to think of theology as the queen of the sciences, but we're going to think in terms of politics and economics, and increasingly, not quite yet, but increasingly psychology, which is very individualized. We're not thinking of the soul of the individual as a part of the soul of an extended family or a tribe or a nation. We're going to drill down into the psychology of the individual who we now study as under a microscope for all of his feelings, all of his thoughts, all of his inclinations, all of his beliefs. What do you believe? Not what does your family believe? What is your economic prospect? Not what are the prospects of your extended family? What's interesting about this is a lot of what we read in the Bible, it seems, has more in common with the old social imaginary. Not all of it, but a lot of it. When we see the family discussed, talked about, dealt with, interacted with 
what we very often find is the family unit has a reputation to think of. They have interests. They have wealth. And again, going back to the head of household, you have a household, you have an extended family, you have heads of households in Israel, for instance, in the Old Testament, who represent their father's houses. That is to say that this mantle of leadership, if they're a patriarch, this mantle of leadership and headship and authority and making decisions, making judgments, coordinating everyone, coordinating the work and also the leisure, having servants, the servants are really answerable to the head of the household, the patriarch. Sons are answerable to their fathers, if their fathers are still alive. But then on the other hand, there are limitations and there are checks and balances because the man who gets married, it says for this reason, will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And so he also has a particular authority over his wife. He has a particular authority over his children, even as he is himself under authority still in some sense, in some respect. Gideon is not an autonomous individual in the book of Judges. He is enlisting his father's servants to tear down the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole by God's command in the middle of the night in the previous chapter to Judges chapter 7, which I just read for you at the top of this episode. And who do the men of the town go to to exact vengeance? They might say justice, but vengeance for the act of sacrilege and iconoclasm. They go to Joash because they have to go to Joash in order to get Gideon. Joash has to hand Gideon over to them because Joash is actually the one in charge, really. But then on the other hand, we see that God is the one in charge because God doesn't go to Joash to say, tell your son Gideon to tear down this altar. That's interesting. And what you might find, what I might find, and I'll share it with you and then we'll find it together. What we might find if we're looking at the 16th to the 19th century, how the family, sex, and marriage in England changed is we might find that there was too much of an emphasis on the extended family being what held sway over the decisions of individuals. Or perhaps possibly as people wanted to overhaul society, they wanted to reform, in this case, the United Kingdom, they had to not just break down the authority of fathers, but really actually more to the point, patriarchs after a fashion, heads of households and extended families. Go after those guys and get them out of the picture. And if this is happening round about the same time that you have, say, perhaps younger sons of noble fathers going off to the new world, they're not going to be the recipients of the lion's share of primogenitor. Their oldest brother will, unless he passes away, in which case they may come home and assume the mantle, take over the leadership of the property, the estates, the houses and the lands, and those who live on the lands and pay rents. Otherwise, the younger sons stay in the new world. And if they have wealth, if they have means, if they are the ones entrusted in the new world, well, then they act on behalf of their father's instructions, their father's wishes. 
A picture of this possibly is Walter Scott's Rob Roy, a novel set in Scotland around this time period, actually, where the main character may seem like Rob Roy because the book is called Rob Roy, but the first-person narration is from the vantage point of a son who is trying to go after someone who cheated and defrauded his father. His father was a merchant and trusted the wrong young man, and that young man is in the process of trying to ruin a father who had commercial interests. The son didn't want to do that line of work. He wanted to be an artist. He wanted to be a writer. And now he's going to have to put all that off to the side and chase after someone who has dishonored his father. And in order to honor his father and meet his own obligations, this son has to go looking for this guy who has cheated his father. It's a matter of honor, family honor, but also the family's economic and social standing because the extended family is a critically important unit of society in the United Kingdom, in England and Scotland and Ireland and Wales. Along the way, he encounters Rob Roy. But I look at Google Books here talking about the nuclear family coming into existence what we call the nuclear family. How many of us even know what that means? What is this, a nuclear family? Is this talking about the atomic age? <laughs> no. If I go over to Wikipedia and I ask Wikipedia, <laughs> what is the nuclear family? Here's what I find. A nuclear family, elementary family, atomic family, serial packet family, or conjugal family, is a family group consisting of parents and their children, one or more, typically living in one home residence. It is in contrast to a single parent family, a larger extended family, or a family with more than two parents. Nuclear families typically center on a married couple, which may have any number of children. There are differences in definition among observers. Some definitions allow only biological children who are full-blood siblings and consider adopted or half and step-siblings a part of the immediate family, but others allow for a step-parent and any mix of dependent children, including stepchildren and adopted children. Some sociologists and anthropologists consider the nuclear family as the most basic form of social organization, while others consider the extended family structure to be the most common family structure in most cultures and at most times. And take special note of that because that is largely lost on many of us who have grown up in broken families, in broken homes. It's lost on us, many of us. If I grew up alienated from my grandparents on both sides, by and large, which I did, due in large part to decisions that were made to distance ourselves, not decisions made by me, but I was a child growing up in a home where very early only did I have interaction with my paternal grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and then we separated ourselves because there were some disputes as to how my mother was being related to, how I was being related to, how my father was being related to. It's a long story, but suffice to say, I grew up largely alienated from my extended family on my father's side. On my mother's side, I had only memories in my very youngest years 
and then a little bit around the age of 10 of my aunts and my uncles, my mother's older brother and my mother's older sister and their spouses and my cousins on that side. Very, very little interaction. Coming down from Montana, we stayed a little while in Florida and had a little bit of interaction, mostly with my grandparents, maternal grandparents. But then also there was a broken relationship there and the decision was made to move to Ohio. Not a decision made by me, but a decision that I was affected by profoundly. Around about the age of 17 or 18, I became much more involved in the lives of my grandparents on both sides, but really only aunts, uncles, cousins on my father's side, in large part because my father encouraged that. He found that to be very important. He wanted me to know my extended family on his side, and he was still in contact with all of them. And so I started going to family reunions. My being able to get into the oil and gas industry was predicated on my relying on my extended family to, one, give me a place to land for three months while I found a high-paying job with ConocoPhillips as a lease operator. And then also my extended family helped immensely in helping us to find the first house that we rented, which also was by way of connections through our extended family. It was the widow of one of my dad's first cousins who still owned the farmhouse that she and my father's cousin had lived on and raised their family on until he passed away, unfortunately, due to perhaps a brain aneurysm decades ago. But what's curious to me is I grew up in the nuclear family, and then at junior high age, thereabouts, my parents got divorced. For that matter, too, if you want to know the truth, having grown up alienated from that extended family, even as I sought to get reconnected, what's interesting to me, and there's just no getting around this fact, what's interesting to me is that my being the son of, on the one hand, a mother who said, we will have no more contact at all, ever again, with this extended family on that side, that, whether consciously or unconsciously, meant that I inherited a certain stigma among that side of the family. Being Alice's son put me behind the eight ball. There's just no two ways about it. On the other hand, I was Byron's son. And insofar as my mother, Alice, had said, there will be no more contact with the extended family. And my father had acquiesced to that demand for years, for most of my childhood and almost all of my brother's childhood, I wasn't just Alice's son, I was also Byron's son. And that too, whether consciously or unconsciously on the part of my extended family, put me in a very odd place relative to them. The ones I still keep up with, the ones I still maintain contact with are the ones who were the most gracious, the most welcoming, and who treated me as myself allowed me to be judged on the merit of my own decisions, my own positions, my own character, in my view, as I interpret things, instead of everything being penalized based on whose son I was, who I reminded them of. But it's fascinating to me. It really, truly is. It's fascinating to me to think about 
the benefits that can come with a large and industrious extended family and also the pain and the penalty that can come from being either excluded or otherwise alienated from a large industrious extended family. It's a very fascinating thing to me and to know that there was a major shift, not just with regards to a husband and his wife or a father and his children round about the time of the Industrial Revolution, but that there was also a, by and large, breaking asunder of what had previously been the arrangements of extended families around about that same time. That's very interesting to me. I want to understand that better. I want to get at how these things are actually continuations of one another. Because now, where we're at right now, is it being called into question whether even two parents who are married happily to one another, raising their children in a intact nuclear family, which is the unit of measure we have decided is going to be more typically what we mean when we say family. That's the more common usage and understanding. If communication is about shared meaning, that's what most of us mean when we say my family. We mean the people who live in my house, my wife, my children, and me. That's my family. Not only do we have the breakdown in many cases of marriages or the relationship of your immediate family with your extended family, becoming alienated, estranged, separated, at odds, but we also have, in the case of intact nuclear families, it being challenged that parents have any authority whatsoever over what their children are taught in the public schools. And if we wanted to retrace our steps, we might start to ask even more questions than just, hey, when did the authority of Christian parents over their children come to be held in such low regard or no regard at all? We might start asking questions about when did fathers begin to be sidelined? When were fathers regarded as less authoritative morally, spiritually, and practically over the affairs of their household? And then we might ask a preceding question, which is, when did Western society, when did the English-speaking world more specifically, begin to depart from the idea of a patriarch presiding over an extended family and coordinating the efforts to provide? Think here of, in the New Testament, when there's this discussion of widows and who is a true widow who should be taken care of by the church. Think of where we find, the context in which we find that a man who does not provide for the needs of his household or his family is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's talking about an extended family that you have a responsibility to and also that you should expect something from. If your extended family is not interested at all, they don't care at all about how you're doing, and yet they all claim to be Christians, there's something wrong there. There's something broken in our understanding of this passage, because this passage is coming from a place of the extended family being an important, critically important, 
and God-instituted social organization. Oh, by the way, this is under the heading in the ESV, Instructions for the Church, and verses 1 and 2 say, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Purity here having to do with much more than sexual purity, but having to do with purity of motives and a maintenance of the station within extended families and even the church embracing this way of thinking of the extended family. In some sense, you can think of the church as being the extended family. And ideally, it wouldn't just be that your church is the extended family, particularly if the church is comprised of your actual flesh and blood extended family, because what is commanded? Don't enroll widows who have extended family to help care for them. If the widows have children, adult men, for instance, who are sons, those sons should be taking care of their mothers who are widows. Now, there are qualifications in here for a widow who has a good reputation. She is a godly woman. If she's not a godly woman, you shouldn't be putting her on the rolls, actually, because you may be, and this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, you may be enabling bad behavior. 1 Timothy 5 is probably the best repudiation of the welfare state in the Bible, in my view. And it's also probably the best, most clear affirmation of the extended family as a cohesive social organization in the Bible. If a widow is young, she should not be put on the rolls. Verse 4, he says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. That's a pretty bold statement. This is pleasing in the sight of God. So why are you doing it? Because there's a lot of social pressure in the community, in your culture. No, nothing of the sort is mentioned by Paul. That might be a reason in some contexts, but that's not the reason given. The reason is because this is pleasing to God. And even the idea that there's a return, we're talking investment now. We're talking parents invest in children. Grandparents invest in grandchildren. When they're old and unable to care for themselves anymore, as widows, they should make a return on that investment. They should see a benefit coming back to them in their old age. Their children and their grandchildren should be taking care of them. And the church should not be burdened with taking care of those elderly parents and grandparents. Now, on an individual basis, if you see someone else, hey, we need to be out of town, we need to go someplace, could my mother, could my grandmother call you if she has any issues while we're out of town? Is that okay? I have to handle some business. I'm going to have to fly to such and such a place to attend a conference or what have you. Is that acceptable? If you can cheerfully do so within the context of the church, sure. But you don't put these widows on the equivalent of the welfare list for the church. It is still, first and foremost, the responsibility of the extended family. Now, going back to the nuclear family entry in Wikipedia, and then we'll come back to 1 Timothy 5. The nuclear family, as a term, was popularized 
in the 20th century. Since that time, the number of North American nuclear families is gradually decreasing while the number of alternative family formations has increased. Now, here's some history for you. DNA extracted from bones and teeth discovered at a 4,600-year-old Stone Age burial site in Germany has provided the earliest evidence for the social recognition of a family consisting of two parents with multiple children. Historians Alan McFarlane, I'm sure we're related, and Peter Laslett, among other European researchers, say that nuclear families have been a primary arrangement in England since the 13th century. The primary arrangement was different from the normal arrangements in Southern Europe in parts of Asia and the Middle East, where it was common for young adults to remain in or marry into the family home. In England, multi-generational households were uncommon because young adults would save enough money to move out into their own household once they married. Sociologist Bridget Berger argued the young nuclear family had to be flexible and mobile as it searched for opportunity and property, forced to rely on their own ingenuity. Its members also needed to plan for the future and develop bourgeois habits of work and saving. Berger also mentions that this could be one of the reasons that the Industrial Revolution began in England and other Northwest European countries. However, the historicity of the nuclear family in England has been challenged by Cord Ostman. Family structures of a married couple and their children were present in Western Europe and New England in the 17th century, influenced by church and theocratic governments. I think theocratic governments, you take that with a grain of salt. What they mean by theocratic and what we should understand, maybe, maybe not the same thing. With the emergence of proto-industrialization and early capitalism, the nuclear family became a financially viable social unit. Now, I'm going to skip usage of the term and pick back up in the section titled Compared with Extended Family. An extended group consists of non-nuclear or non-immediate family members considered together with nuclear or immediate family members. When extended family is involved, they also influence children's development just as much as the parents would on their own. In an extended family, resources are usually shared among those involved, adding more of a community aspect to the family unit. This is not limited to the sharing of objects and money, but includes sharing time. For example, extended family members, such as grandparents, are able to watch over grandchildren, allowing parents to continue and pursue careers and allows the parents to reduce stress levels. Extended families also contribute to children's mental health due to increased resources in terms of adult support. Under the heading Changes to Family Formation, we find the following interesting admissions and assertions. In 2005, information from the U.S. Census Bureau showed that 70% of children in the U.S. live in two-parent families, with 66% of those living with parents who were married and 60% living with their biological parents. The information also explained that the figures suggest that the tumultuous shifts in family structure since the late 1960s have leveled off since 1990. When considered separately from couples without children, single-parent families, and unmarried couples with children— the United States nuclear families appear to constitute a minority of households with a rising prevalence of other family arrangements. In 2000, nuclear families with the original biological parents constituted roughly 24.1% of American households compared with 40.3% in 1970. Roughly two-thirds of all children in the U.S. will spend at least some time in a single-parent household. According to some sociologists, the nuclear family no longer seems adequate to cover the wide diversity of household arrangements we see today. 
A new term has been introduced, postmodern family, intended to describe the great variability in family forms, including single-parent families and couples without children. Nuclear family households are now less common compared to household with couples without children, single-parent families, and unmarried couples with children. In the UK, the number of nuclear families fell from 39% of all households in 1968 to 28% in 1992. The decrease accompanied an equivalent increase in the number of single-parent households and in the number of adults living alone. Now, we'll just stop right there. And there's more that can be said, as is almost always the case, and we'll skip on down to effect on family size. Here we read this interesting tidbit. As a fertility factor, single nuclear family households generally have a higher number of children than cooperative living arrangements, according to studies from both the Western world and India. There have been studies done that show a difference in the number of children wanted per household according to where they live. Families that live in rural areas wanted to have more kids than families in urban areas. A study done in Japan between October 2011 and February 2012 further researched the effect of area of residence on mean desired number of children. Researchers of the study came to the conclusion that women living in rural areas with larger families were more likely to want more children compared to women that lived in urban areas in Japan. And I think a reason for this can be very self-evident insofar as when you're surrounded by people all the time in your neighborhood, in your city, there can be a perception that takes root that there's no vacancy. We're all filled up. There's no room for more people. Where are we going to put them? Whereas when you live out in the country and you look in every direction and it's miles and miles of grass and rocks and trees and bushes and wild animals, you're more likely to say, I would say instinctively, like it's in our DNA, we should be fruitful and multiply, fill this earth and subdue it, exercise dominion over it. But that is to say too, that what the policies are, say, through the Industrial Revolution, drawing more families into the cities to work in the factories or to work in various supportive commercial endeavors, you know, feeding the factory workers, for instance, clothing the factory workers, for instance, building houses for the factory workers, fixing and maintaining the houses for the factory workers, and so on and so on. Those forces actually directly contribute to women wanting fewer children. And by contrast, policies that would facilitate moving out to the country that would reward that, incentivize that, make it profitable to do so, or at least make it sustainable to do so, are more likely to reverse current demographic trends, which see us shrinking the world's population or the population of this or that country. When large swaths of land are being closed off for even hiking, camping, fishing, hunting, much less building a home, building a town, farming, ranching, when increasingly large swaths of land are being declared wildlife refuge or national park or a preserve of this or that kind, when decreasingly land is zoned for residential construction, or what land is zoned for 
commercial and industrial development is concentrated in the cities, what you get is what we've gotten, which is families not having as many children. And when coupled with a shift away from the extended family as the social safety net and towards the nuclear family, either sinking or swimming on its own, there's so many what ifs that don't have a satisfying mitigation of hazards for young people. And then if you add to that pressure from media on young people to wait longer and longer to get married and to have fewer and fewer children, if it's stigmatized, if we present lots of examples of more fun things to do supposedly with your liberty than commit to a wife, men, or commit to a husband, women, and have children, husbands and wives, when a lot of pressure is exerted to show you much more fun things that you could be doing instead. And also, if those media influences are working nonstop, day and night, to present to you cautionary tale after cautionary tale and plenty of horror stories as well of what happens when you get married and it doesn't work out, or when you have children and you're tired, you're stressed out, it's difficult, the children aren't listening, your home is a mess. They get sick. They go wayward. They're always fighting you and everything. When that's being presented all the time, what we have is the reinforcement of and the establishment of a consensus, which is very profitable to the people who own the factories and who zone the districts and who write the laws while also investing in the markets, either directly or through proxies in their extended family. They have extended families that are able to amass small fortunes and large fortunes thereby, all at the expense of not just the nuclear family, but the extended family. And just think with me for a moment about what the conversation maybe goes like. Early industrial revolution, when some factory owner has, I don't know, 30, 40, 100 employees, and a son of some head of household for a sizable extended family is being mistreated or is perhaps being abused. The son goes back to his father and says, hey, I'm really concerned about these things and I just don't know what to do about it. And the father says, I'll go talk with the guy who owns that factory. And early on when there still is this idea of an extended family, perhaps what you get is the head of this household, the patriarch of an extended family having, oh, I don't know, 10 sons and daughters who are now grown, who in turn have five to 10 children themselves, plus their spouses. And you might have roughly the same number of people under the authority of this patriarch of an extended family. And on the other hand, this factory owner. And so they're speaking as something like equals if we're just doing a head count. But what makes the difference is the guy who owns the factory probably has a lot more wealth and a lot more sway in the community if he says, I am a major driver of economic activity in this community. I'll do what I want. As a matter of fact, I'll give money to politicians who will write laws and enforce the laws and judge the laws so that I do what I want. And oh, by the way, maybe I become a patron of the arts and I fund works of art, so-called, supposedly, plays, 
And then as film takes over the role that plays formerly occupied, I'll fund movies and TV shows and maybe recording artists who are musicians, maybe authors, scholars, to build out the intellectual justification, the cultural justification for seeing the local factory as the primary engine of economic growth, all the while eroding the authority and influence of a patriarch over an extended family. And then when you break it down into nuclear families, maybe what you get in some cases is the heads of a nuclear family, right? It's me, my wife, my children getting assertive and saying, hey, listen, here are some boundaries and some limitations, particularly if in due time, that man's wife works at the factory. And now the manager has a claim to some authority over this woman. And the husband also has a claim to having authority or say so, and is concerned about some of the things that he's hearing and seeing. How do you resolve that difficulty? You just continue on eroding the authority of the husband and the father, the head of the family unit. And maybe that manager just rides on the coattails of this idea that the factory is the primary engine of economic growth and affluence. He shows up and he helps manage the church too. And before you know it, managing the church looks like an extension of managing the factory insofar as he gives generously in tithes and offerings, and he shows up to provide a lot of direction and advice. Perhaps he even sits on a board of elders or some other governing board for that church or the denomination, because with all the free time and all of the being used to being deferred to, he expects to be listened to and he speaks in very calm tones when he's with the church people. And he says, this is what I'm seeing. And we need more sermons preaching against husbands and fathers for not being hard enough workers and not having a good enough work ethic in our factories. And also we need more sermons dealing with the failings of husbands and fathers. And what don't you hear? You don't hear sermons about how managers are relating to their employees. In due time, what fills that vacuum in far too many cases is the radical left saying, we are going to unionize and we are going to create a new social organization. The community organizer is going to activate communities of minorities. Well, why are these communities of minorities needing some outsider who has leftist ideas, Marxist ideas to come in and mobilize them and be their representative? In part, it's because there's a vacuum that's been created by the loss of heads of households, the loss of patriarchs over extended families who formerly would have represented and been the go-between. They would have stood between aggressive, perhaps malicious forces, predatory forces in the community or in the larger region and the members of their household, their extended family. But then that's just the reason. That's the exact reason why you would want to erode this extended family as being an authoritative, cohesive block to contend with. That's why you would want the legislature in your state or in your country to take an ever larger role in deciding what will and won't be permitted, what will and won't be required, who's going to get what, when, from whom, and how. 
Frederick Bastiat would call this legal plunder. And if we think that's free market capitalism and that those are Western values, we may need to go a little bit farther back on the timeline, particularly when we see how these things have progressed, some would say, but really regressed, leading to not just the breakdown of the extended family into nuclear families, not just the breakdown of the nuclear family, as we have talked so much about in all the years of my life. I hear that phrase all the time among conservatives. We're concerned about the breakdown of the nuclear family. You should be. Yes, but what preceded, what is the breakdown of the nuclear family a continuation of? Trends that actually, you could argue, originated with the breakdown of the extended family. You say, I'm very concerned about the breakup of marriages or young people not even getting married to begin with and not maintaining strong ties with an extended family. Well, what precipitated that but the erasure and the erosion of there being a perceived benefit, whether provisional or protective, in the extended family? If it's all costs, think of it this way. If it's all costs and it's no benefits, why wouldn't you separate yourself out from your extended family? If they're being abusive, malicious, passive-aggressive, if they're tearing you down, if they're attacking your reputation, if they're just being mean and petty and picking on the way that you look, oh, you're fat. I'm going to make some comments about you being fat. Oh, you're not a very good homemaker. You're not a very good cook. Pick, 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 until you understand the pecking order here. Oh, you have this view. Yeah, we're going to make sure we bring that to heel, bring you into conformity with the extended family values. If it's only that, and it's actually no benefit because the extended family is not protective when members are being harassed, picked on, bullied, attacked, sabotaged, preyed upon, well, then of course you would have the breakdown of the extended family. Of course. I now have seven sons who have been born to me, plus a daughter, and our eighth son is due in November, actually two months to the day from today is the due date. And I'm thinking about my oldest sons in a few short years being adults and a Western, and by this I mean a rather English-speaking world now, convention would be when they hit 18, they want to save up the money to move out, get a place of their own, and start their own family unit, hopefully. Although that's very much in question with more recent trends where increasingly young people aren't getting married. And so I'm working on a book and this is why we got married. And now I'm thinking, okay, if I finish that book up because I take some vacation time, the week that Nathaniel is born, if I finish up my book and this is why we got married, I kind of need to be thinking about what comes next. How do I support and guide and love and provide for and protect and prepare my sons in particular, for that next phase of life. And so I find myself turning my attention to how is the deck stacked against them being able to work, earn, have a home of their own, have their own vehicle, feed themselves, clothe themselves, keep the lights on, get married, have children of their own. How do I prepare them for that? How do I do that practically? And that's part of the impetus for doing this Ecclesia Forum and the welfare of the city project, because in its welfare, we will find our welfare. And the other piece of it is familial. And it's talking about extended family. That's what you get when you 
take wives and have sons and daughters and give your sons and daughters away in marriage so that they also will have sons and daughters. You have an extended family there and you have to think about seeking the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile for in its welfare, you will find your welfare, but not just yours in the singular individualistic sense, but your welfare in the sense of your household and your extended family if the generations persist in this new land. But now I'm thinking in terms of also socially, how do we as a family relate to others? I want my sons to have a good reputation. I want my daughter to have a good reputation. I want them to have good prospects when it comes to the kinds of work they're invited to take on, what they do for a vocation or a career. I want them to have good prospects as far as other families that we respect and we like welcoming and even encouraging my sons to marry their daughters, my daughter to marry one of their sons. And I'm thinking through the implications of if we just stick to the attitudes that we have right now, just freeze them. Good luck with that. But imagining it were so, if we were to, would that produce the good life, the righteous life that I feel a responsibility to prepare my sons and my daughter for, that I pray that they will have? I want to leave an inheritance for my children's children. If I freeze the current way of relating, and it just is that perpetually, will I actually leave an inheritance for my children's children? That's where my mind is going right now. Some of the things that concern me are not just the macro trends outside of the church. Some of the things that concern me are the macro trends in the American church, the mainstream American evangelical scene, which seek to spiritualize whatever the status quo is. Find some support in the scriptures and then say, that's our life first now. And that's how, I hate to say it, you conform yourself to the pattern of this world instead of being transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. But then the flip side, and this is a catch-22, the flip side, if we're entirely honest with each other, I at least need to be honest with myself, the flip side, the catch-22 is if the broader trend in American evangelicalism is the equivalent of just trust the experts, but here our experts are the pastors with the largest followings, with the most books sold, the pastors with the most subscribers to their YouTube channel or their podcast, if here Trust the experts means trust the pastors who have been pastors the most decades, or they have planted the most churches, or they've baptized the most new converts, or they have the most people attending their Sunday morning services, whether in person or through satellite locations, satellite campuses. That's the trendy thing. That's the trendy thing to call it now, because heaven knows you couldn't just appoint a faithful man to be overseer and preacher and teacher, equip him over that campus. No, no, you're going to have to broadcast it from your main church. Oh, trust the experts. But what if, right? What if some of these experts, what if a lot of these experts are tickling itching ears? And what if the itching ears want to hear and have been wanting to hear progressively more justification for not getting married, not having children, not actually teaching those children, training them up, discipling those children that are born, if children are born. What if the itching ears are one thing to hear, you have no standing as a member of an extended family, 
maybe even no standing as a member of an immediate family, if we can find anything to go on to destroy your credibility because we've expanded in a pharisaical way, all of the things you might be accused of sinning in to include even just an interpretation of your tone or your motives. How do they know? How do they see that? How do they quantify what is an appropriate tone? You don't find tone, by the way, in the scriptures, not when you're reading letters on a page. You don't find tone. You have to infer what the tone is. Nevertheless, that doesn't stop these experts. And so here's my dilemma. My dilemma is if I pick up this book by Lawrence Stone, for instance, for example, or if I pick up the one that's under it by Samuel Rutherford, written in 1644, if I start talking in very throwback terms about how we relate to civil authorities or how we relate to business owners and corporations and the wealthy or the poor. If I start going very throwback, let's dust off 16th, 17th century history here to figure out how we got to now and what we should do about it, how we get ourselves perhaps into a better condition where it's more probable that we'll be faithful, fruitful, joyful, durable, perseverant. What I see in my own extended family is something of a preview for what I come to expect from the broader American evangelical church. And what I mean by that is, if you don't observe the pecking order pretty soon, you find that the doors of support are closed to you. And by support, what I mean is, taking seriously anything that you say, however true it is, because that's just not how things are done around here. That's just not how we talk to that person in this position because that's considered now disrespectful. Well, wait a second. (laughs) It seems almost impossible to avoid disrespecting this person without just uncritically agreeing with and flattering everything that comes out of his mouth and everything that he does. But is it possible that a whole lot of the status quo we've built up and come to expect and normalize and spiritualize even, is it possible that quite a lot of it is predicated on systematizing a disrespect towards men like myself? Is it possible that this expert could be disrespecting men like me as a matter of course, and we don't even think of it as disrespect? Is it possible that he's actually sinned against me? Going back to 1 Timothy 5, though, I'm not good with that. I'm not good with just throwing it all out and saying, that ship has sailed, throw in the towel on the extended family as a meaningful and useful and profitable and secure unit of organizing. I'm not good with that. 1 Timothy 5 starts out, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Who is Paul writing to? He's writing not just, not first and foremost, to you or to me by name. He's writing to Timothy, who has been told to put things in order. He's been told to establish some leadership. He's given instructions for overseers and deacons how to know whether some men are qualified to be in those positions. On the one hand, looking to the preaching and teaching role within the church. And on the other hand, looking to overseeing the more practical side of service, 
Say, for instance, caring for widows and orphans on behalf of the church, whatever the church collects, if they sell possessions, and then they take the money from selling those possessions and they adopt widows who are truly widows, as it says, the deacons are the ones who make sure that everything is in order, done appropriately, fairly, with impartiality. They handle the practical side of it. They coordinate. They direct that. They administer that. Paul says to Timothy, do not rebuke an older man. Timothy's the guy who's supposed to be appointing overseers here. Timothy is a younger man. He says at one point, don't let anyone look down on you for your youth. How old was he? We don't know. Some people hate the idea that he was in his early 20s, mid-20s. It's enough to know he was younger than older men who were in the church or who would be in the church. And Paul tells him, don't rebuke an older man. Encourage him. Speak to him as you would to your own father, respectfully. That doesn't mean you don't try to direct him, but the way in which you direct an older man is to encourage him. You're not trying to damage his reputation with his wife and his children. You're not trying to undermine his authority in the home. And if he is a patriarch and he's got grown sons and daughters who in turn have given him grandchildren, made him a grandfather, if he is the head over an extended family, you're not trying to undermine him or knock him off of that position of honor. No, no. Encourage him as you would a father. Timothy is certainly old enough to be a father himself if he has men who are old enough in the church to be his father, that is to say, they're probably older men who have grown sons themselves. And those grown sons, in all probability, have wives and children of their own. Encourage men who are in that station of life. Don't rebuke them. Oh, but we're supposed to rebuke. Not those men. Encourage those men. And even with the younger men, you don't come in with a high-handed approach. Relate to those younger men as you would to a brother. So also the older women. Don't rebuke the older women. Don't be rude, disrespectful, because what's that going to do? That's going to provoke the protective instincts of their husbands, if their husbands are still around. It's going to provoke the protective instincts of the sons of those older women who are old enough to be your mom. And now you're going to have conflict with their sons, and to some extent, rightly so. But then we have these instructions for widows. And the widows are not all virtuous just because their husbands have passed away, because they've suffered. Be compassionate, but also this is not a one-size-all approach to looking after them. You don't just defer to them in everything, because what you might do actually is enable bad behavior on the part of some of these widows. Now, if she, that is a widow, is over 60 years of age, she was only married once, she was a woman with a good reputation, a reputation for good works, she raised children, she was hospitable, she washed the feet of the saints, she's humble, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work, she's the kind of woman that the church takes under their wing and puts on the rolls. Let her be enrolled. But refuse to enroll younger widows. They're going to want to get married again. Also, in the meantime, they're going to be idlers, it says. 
going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. I would have younger widows, here's what Paul says, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander. So that is to say, if younger widows are just like, yeah, I don't want to get remarried, I want to be involved in everybody else's life, getting in their business, chattering about what they're up to, Paul says that's not good. If a believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened. But that is to say, the extended family has one a responsibility, but for another thing, has standing. The responsibility cannot be decoupled from the capacity to actually fulfill and make good on the responsibility. That's not fair. That's a very cruel thing. If we say the responsibility is there, but you have no authority, no capacity, that's cruel. A little further down, it says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What is that? We're talking about sin. What is sin? The Greek word here is hamartano. It means to miss the mark, to violate God's law. That is what sin means, to violate God's law. So God says, do not do, and you do. God says, do, and you don't. If we make that so broad that for someone to just have upset you, you just are angry with them, or what they did or what they said was inconvenient to what you wanted, what you were demanding, and we can't understand the difference between what you commanded and what God commanded, or if you think that everything you command is a subset of what God has commanded, take care. What we find is nature abhors a vacuum. And insofar as the extended family collapsing previously in a way that presages the ongoing collapse of the nuclear family in our day, what is filling the vacuum in the West has been the church whether or not it should have been filling that vacuum. Because as we see here, Paul would say, no, 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 no. Don't be so quick to fill the vacuum when it comes to widows who have extended family. The extended family should be called upon to be that social safety net. And if we have professing Christians who are not, who are refusing to be that social safety net, they're worse than unbelievers. They're worse than infidels. They betray themselves by saying, the church can handle it. The church can take care of it. It's none of my business. Oh yes, it's none of your business, but you certainly do like to chatter about. You're the widows, or the equivalent of the widows, if you're part of an extended family that likes to chatter, but you're not supportive. If it's all cost and no benefit, don't be surprised. When the younger generation says, yeah, we're out. We're going to go move to a different state, do our own thing, And no, we don't particularly want to come to your reunion where all of you who (laughs) occupy the same rarefied air and don't have to give favors without getting them in return, get together. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll sit that out. And yet, it's not just the church that's filled this vacuum. It's also the state. The church has been too quick to fill the vacuum left with, created by the 
collapse of the extended family as the social safety net, but also the state. The state has been too quick. And even in some cases, it feels very strongly like some wanted to accelerate the breakdown of the extended family and the nuclear family so as to create a state of dependence. That dependence means control. And yet what you're told in most cases in a progressive media landscape or educational environment, what you're told is when you think about the potential for abuses of power, you should think first and foremost about the abuse that can come from a husband and a father or a patriarch over an extended family. That's the abuse you should be concerned about. No, 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 no. Don't you dare start talking about the ways that the state can abuse those who are dependent. No, 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 no. Romans 13, that's all we need to know. Be subject. Really? Does, does be subject really mean that husbands and fathers have no authority at all over how their children are taught? What's done to their wives, how their wives are treated? Really? No, no authority at all. That's, it's just a, a blank check that we give to the civil authorities. Surely not. But then, what was I saying about Lex Rex, the law and the king, sitting on my desk right here? Or the church, right? A husband, father, maybe even a grandfather who is something like a patriarch over an extended family, even if it's informal, unconscious, not like it would have been in centuries past, if he comes into a church environment and there's a disagreement, I don't have all the answers, but what do you do when the nuclear family is subordinated to the church, but then you might have extended family spread out over a wide geographic region and not everybody does go to the same local church. All bound up in the breakdown of the extended family and even seeing that as something that we would be sad about, we would regret, we would try to figure out what to do about you have the breakdown of the nuclear family. And with the breakdown of the nuclear family, you have many children growing up without fathers or without mothers or without aunts and uncles, without grandparents, without cousins. You have an awkwardness of what are the roles? What are the rules here? How do we relate to each other? If I'm going to come back into a situation and now there's a pecking order that is being asserted or I'm being ostracized or I'm being gossiped about, ah, maybe it was better when I was still apart from all y'all. And maybe I just plan forward. And I think that's the conclusion I've come to, is it's somewhat a wash. The passing of my grandparents' mullet, my grandparents' renew, was the end of that. And even my parents being divorced, it introduces all kinds of difficult questions of, say, for instance, if something were to happen to my brother, and now it's just me and my wife, and I have a strained relationship with my mother. Is my dad going to come and move in with us and live with us when he gets of a certain age where he can't live on his own anymore? And what if my mother also hits that same age at about the same time, that same condition of life? Does she move in and live down the hall one direction, and my dad moves in and he lives down the hall in the other direction? How does one navigate that blamelessly? For that matter, if there is a problem in the extended family, let's say, for instance, trying to figure out when my grandparents were still around, before they passed on, if there were questions about end-of-life care, and certain ministers who had married into the family decided to weigh in, because they're ministers after all, 
they're experts on these things. They're experts on holy things and how to be blameless. So they weighed in. Their input was received and disseminated, repeated by some who wanted a certain outcome. But if I, as the oldest son of the oldest son, even hinted that I may have something to say about this, I may have some concerns or some directions myself that I would like to offer to you for your consideration even. No, 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 no. You don't have any standing here. Yes, well, I suppose that's true enough. I suppose I knew that, but how did it come to be? It came to be because preceding my not having any standing, there was an unhealthy approach to insisting on there being authority without any protectiveness, without any provisional capacity leveraged to give benefits. It was only cost. The cost being you circulate, you attend, you subject yourself, but you're not going to be protected and you're not going to be provided for when you need a safety net. So you get costs. You get tore down, you get picked on, you get mocked, jeered at, made fun of, insulted. All of that is just part of it. But if you object, then you're out of order. You're out of line. You did this to yourself. That's what happened. What's curious too is if I think forward, right? If I try and just say, all right, I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm not going to do anything about this. There's nothing for it. If I move forward, but these are the forces at work. These are the sentiments, particularly if that extended family and so many other extended families like this one have kept certain cliques that work together, perhaps because of similar dynamics to what my great-grandfather Donald Steely McFarland encountered when he was disinherited for objecting to his father taking a mistress, putting her in a house in Harrisburg where she could raise their love child. The ones who are allowed to remain in fellowship and continue to avail themselves of the immediate benefits and also the expectation of inheriting when the older generation passes on. When those who remain, remain on the basis of not objecting to anything that's done, and then they become very wealthy, and then they in turn contribute from their wealth, from a position of strength, to the direction of the facilitation of certain ministers and schools and churches. What do they promote and what do they penalize? They promote the same sorts of attitudes which they credit with having facilitated their own success. What do they penalize or starve of support? The attitudes of those who were marginalized, sidelined, ostracized, written out, marked off. If I think forward, one of the things that I have to reckon with, and if you were of the same mindset, you were similarly going to think through the ramifications of multi-generational building of a family legacy, One of the things you would also have to think through and figure out is what happens if as a husband, as a father, or in due time, Lord willing, as a grandfather, what if you were to say that thing you just taught or preached is not correct because it is written? Here, let's consider these scriptures. Let's be a Berean about it. What might you find What might I find? How do I brace myself for that? How do I prepare my sons? How do I equip my sons in particular to navigate that blamelessly 
if we find ourselves in a situation where even just a simple disagreement is taken as profound disrespect and initiates a chain of events that ultimately leads to the removal of all credibility within the church and within the family. How do you train somebody to be ready for that, to be prepared for that? How do you advise someone that that might be what happens to them? It's a risk. On the one hand, here's what I'm going to leave off with, and then we'll just have to pick this up again another day. On the one hand, if you are trying to figure out where do I invest my time in the church? We're just moving forward. I'm going to try and start fresh. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I associate with other saints in a local body of believers, in a local church. Say you go to a church which is not quite 100% correct in all their doctrine, but the people are very kind. They're very generous. They're very charitable, but they're so kind. They're so generous that they want to affirm a woman's right to choose to get an abortion. They want to affirm homosexual couples because that's love, we've been told. Jesus said to love, this is love. Love is love. Let's say that they're a church which increasingly wants to open the door to or they just out and out do ordain women to be ministers. Do you hold your nose? Do you say, you know what? They're very nice people. So now we go to that church because we need a surrogate extended family. And that's looking so nice that they're so kind. They're so nice. They're so welcoming. Well, if you do, if you go that route, but you say, well, wait, I'm concerned that some of these things that are being preached or taught or written or done are disobedient. That is when you test whether these are actually so kind, sweet, generous, loving people as you initially thought. You find out very quickly if they judge whether you are a threat to their happy community, to their testimony in the community, based on whether you object to these things. They say you're not being loving and you should probably just leave now. This is probably not the church for you anymore. So you do. So you leave. And let's suppose by accident or because you're looking for a more conservative church, you say, okay, I don't want to repeat of that. We're going to go and find a church where they are very firm on the doctrine of marriage and sexual ethics that matches what the Bible says. Some would call it conservative. I would just say faithful. That's your goal. Your goal is not even conservative. You just want to not have that be a point of conflict. And so you go find a different church, a different church where they say, we believe that marriage is only between a man and a woman. We believe divorce is a tragedy and it should only be in the case of sexual immorality. That's what God's word says. That's what we believe. Furthermore, we believe in church discipline. We believe in the right and the obligation of the leaders of the church to remove from fellowship those who are in unrepented of sin, to throw them out, hand them over to Satan so that they will repent and be restored. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being co-eternal, co-equal, consubstantial, all that. We believe in the Athanasian Creed. We believe in the Chalcedonian Creed. We believe in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the Nicene Creed. You go to that church, you show up, you are there. And at first again, you think, wow, this is so nice. This is a really good place to be. Man, that last church we were at, they just could not accept 
being disagreed with. I'm so glad we're here where you guys are submitting yourselves to the authority of God's word. Wow, man, just so thankful. But then let's suppose that a lot of that firmness on doctrine is all mixed up with a certain arbitrariness to the exercise of pastoral authority. And let's suppose even that sometimes what the pastor orders and demands in the way of obedience to him is questionable at best, but you can't question it or else you quickly find yourself sat down before all the elders and rebuked and ordered to keep silent. Or you can't contradict it because now you have undermined the authority of the pastor. Now you are told you must repent of your sin. You have sinned against the pastors. Why? Because we told you to shut up and you didn't shut up. You said you would submit to the authority of the pastors. You're not. Repent. You won't repent? Okay, you're out. And let's suppose, right? Let's suppose that happens or something like that happens or you see that that is building and you see the potential for that and you say, okay, we're out. Leave. And let's suppose you go on to a different kind of a church, a third kind of a church. This third kind of a church, small town, everybody's so sweet, so kind. Oh man, you guys aren't like that last place. Authoritarian. Your pastor is so kind, so nice, so humble, so considerate. We are just so glad to be here. We're glad you're not like that last church where the arbitrary exercise of authority was used in an abusive way. When can we become members? How can we help? We're rolling up our sleeves. We're going to help any way we can. And let's suppose that that next church blows up because, well, it's true that the pastor doesn't wield that arbitrary abusive power. One particular family in the church does. And the reason why the pastor is so well-behaved is in part because if he ever steps out of line, that one family, that one family that pays the bills and has been a pillar of that church for generations, they'll send it back in. And you too, if you have anything to say about it that does not amount to, please, mom, may I have another? If you don't kiss the ring, if you don't defer, they'll turn on you next, make you feel profoundly unwelcome because they don't want you here anymore. This is their church, not your church. Let's suppose, hypothetically, you're even in a position of leadership, and now you're boxed out because that family demands it. So you are sent packing. Not overtly, but your term is up, and you say, we're leaving because it just keeps getting worse and worse. You see people being beat up on, abused, one after another, and you are powerless to say anything about it because you are continually turned into the problem anytime you try to talk about what the problem is with how people are being related to in an abusive way. All of what I just laid out for you is the very real landscape. And the troubling thing is... (laughs) If you start talking about extended family problems or even problems in family of origin, a lot of the same dysfunctional ways of relating in a dysfunctional family, they find their expression in the surrogate extended family of many evangelical American churches. You start talking about some things that are very concerning, that are being said, asserted, suggested as what the Bible teaches. You say, ah, but I... What about this passage? What about that? And I, ooh, this, this is not so good. And have you considered this? You start trying to correct even just gently 
certain behaviors, certain ways of relating that are disobedient to God, as in they are definitely actual sins, sinful behavior. And you're told, that's enough out of you. And then you say, okay, well, we're going to have to leave. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't leave. We need you. Or where are you going? What do you mean? And you proceed to tell them. And then they turn that into, ah, see, that was the whole problem all along that you thought the pecking order was such that you can actually object to these ways of relating. So disrespectful. So then you go on, right? You leave anyway. You're traumatized. You're beaten. You feel beat up because you are beat up. You move on. You get counsel and you got to be careful who you get counsel from because experience has just proven to you in various different situations, various different types of organizations that to talk about the problem is to become the problem in short order. But you get counsel and you're told, and I quote, because this is all not hypothetical purely, this is mostly my own actual experience, truth be told. You're told what you were up against was culture. Don't take it personally. I know that's hard. I'm sorry that happened to you. What you were up against is culture. That's the culture of that church, or that's the culture of that group over there. That's just the way he is. He's that way with everybody. That's just the way they are. They're that way with everybody. So you move, right? In my case, we moved. I made the decision we're going to move to Colorado, and we were very blessed, right? We were very, very blessed to find Summit View Community Church. And I'll be honest, I'll be entirely honest with you. One of the biggest struggles for me personally has been, how do I learn the right lessons and not the wrong lessons from these bad experiences? And also, how do I talk about any of this in such a way that doesn't turn into, you know, the common denominator we're hearing is you, right? What all these situations have in common is you were involved. And so maybe you are the problem. Usually that only starts to be a conversation once you've started yourself to <laughs> raise certain <laughs> objections and they're going to head that off at the pass. If you start to lay out your resume of how you've seen this building, you see this being common to a lot of American evangelical Christianity in the 21st century, early 21st century, where we're still at right now, they will be less likely to take anything you're saying, in my view, as authoritative on what the broader trends are in American evangelical Christianity in the early 21st century, they'll be more likely to say, that's probably just you. It's probably just you're the problem. You have some bad attitudes. We're going to reach for psychological explanations, political explanations, economic explanations. We'll look for influences that actually make this a you problem, not an us problem. And part of the reason for that is because it's so daunting. If one were correct, that certain broader trends in the way that we approach the relationship between the sojourner and the native, if certain broader trends for how we show partiality for the rich brother as opposed to the poor brother, for certain trends to be affecting all of us, and all of us are having to take positions or having to explain why we're not taking positions on marriage and parenting, for that to be the case, one of my big goals right now is 
to dust off centuries of history and go looking for whether what I'm saying is correct. Did something drastic happen in the last few centuries in the West that heavily influenced the way that the church and the family and the civil government all relate to each other in our context? If something is broken there, and in my own experience, I've seen it up close, I've seen a brokenness repeatedly. You could say, oh, it's just sin, but wait a second. We do know that certain proclivities can be encouraged or discouraged. Look at the stats for how many kids identify as homosexual or transgendered in recent years. As certain messages are coming through from presidents or their cabinets, lawmakers, the corporate media, social media, pop culture, the schools. We know that these stats do change over time and something or lots of things affect them. But then if it can be shown that there's a certain descent of thought, a line of descent with certain attitudes to where we can actually appreciate how some of this was a package deal. It was presented as a package deal. If you want these good benefits, you have to accept these costs. But wait a second, maybe these costs have run away with us. And maybe the unintended consequences are undeniable now. And maybe we need to go back and consider whether those benefits that you say you want would have been better found in what the Bible says that we've just been skipping on over. Say, for instance, the welfare state is a great example of this. If the welfare state is the social safety net because the church and the extended family are no longer regarded as the safety net, well then, when did that happen? Who decided that? Maybe this is a lot bigger than Democrats and Republicans. Maybe this is a lot larger of a problem than America. Maybe this is a Western civilization problem. Maybe this is Western Europe exporting certain prevailing notions. And maybe we're on the cusp of an opportunity to reverse some of these trends. And I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you with a positive notion. Maybe with some of this work remote, work from home arrangement that is increasingly possible, maybe we can see in little pockets here and there, if you're intentional about it, if you really work hard to figure it out, maybe we can see a restoration of the nuclear family. And if that can continue on in a few decades, maybe we see a restoration of at least the opportunity to have strong extended families and strong local churches. But I don't believe for a moment that that consequence is possible. One, if we don't figure out how to have strong nuclear families. And I also don't think it's possible if we're just spiritualizing, rationalizing, justifying the way that it's been. And don't you dare say anything critical about it because that's called disrespectful. If you can't talk about any of these things, what the problems are, you can't come up with any solutions. But then for those who are very comfortable, if we are showing partiality towards them, whether because they have wealth or they have a position of authority, maybe what we need is a rediscovery of a political theology, a political ethic, more broadly in all three spheres, the home, the church, and civil society, that would make sense of more readily God saying directly to Gideon, take a couple of oxen and tear down, pull down the altar to Baal, your father's altar 
Joe Ashes, altar to Baal. Chop down the Asherah pole. Offer one of those oxen as a sacrifice to Yahweh. We shrug about it in the context of the extended family because the extended family doesn't mean that much to us. Remember that the townsmen went to Joash demanding Gideon be handed over. It wasn't just fear of the men of the town that led Gideon to do this under cover of night, in my view. Gideon's life hung in the balance and was dependent on whatever choice his father would make in that case. To hand him over, he could have. He could have done that. But then what's also apparent from that anecdote, that biblical example, is you have Gideon obeying God. If God says, tear down the altar, you tear down the altar. If that causes a stir, and some people say, that's very disrespectful. How dare you? The problem isn't that we had an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole in Israel. The problem is that you tore it down. Boy, howdy. That is an underappreciated fact that God commanded Gideon to do that before God commanded Gideon to call up the men of Israel to march out against Midian. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.